and welcome back to Feargenics, where we don't just watch movies, we devour them. I'm Kelton. And I'm Alex. And using our industry knowledge, we'll tell you everything you need to know about horror cinema, from classic to contemporary. This week, we are watching Possession, the 1981 horror film out of West Germany. Directed by Andrzej Zolowski, this classic horror film has been underground for too long. This is your favorite horror movie director's favorite movie. I could see this being a direct inspiration for other horror films. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of movie where um, the best word I, I use, I use this to describe movies that are just like classic cinema. I call it Kino. It's just so, it's so good that you can watch it and like be inspired by it. This is truly something that like is magical and like came to be and and should be watched and it's such a wonderful work of art and it's also grotesque and disgusting and there's like there's bad things around it like in real life too it's been banned it's gotten re-edited it's hard to find and watch it's a perfect example of like sometimes the best stuff isn't the uh most beautiful isn't the most uh, easy to look at or understand. It makes you take a good hard look <laughs> for sure. So do you want to start with sort of the, should we set the stage for where the world was at uh, when this movie was created? Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to go about this because in the period it's taking place in is directly connected to the film. Yeah, you don't hear me saying that a movie was filmed in West Berlin very often. Literally right next to the Berlin Wall. It is a prominent figure in this movie. You see shots of it a lot. There's shots of people on the wall looking at the main character. Um, my first watch through, it kind of blew my mind. Like, wow, like I'm, I'm just looking at the Berlin Wall right now. It's not a documentary. It's not a war film. It's just the Berlin Wall is there. It existed during this time. And, you know, the communism was all the rage at this time. I would say communism was all the rage in half of the world at this time. Yes, that's okay. Communism was was all the rage, but for some people it was like bad that that was it was the case, right? Like they were ac actively trying not to make it uh, <laughs> the rage. Our director was directly impacted by this. He um, was forced to leave his home in Poland, and it was around this time when uh, he lost his wife. She didn't die. She left him. She divorced him. She cheated on him with another guy named Andre. She, the, his wife wasn't living in reality, didn't understand the threat of communism and, and, and war and the potential of, you know, nuclear bombs dropping. She kind of just lived in this own, in her own little wonderland. And Andre Kowalski was in a deep depression when he wrote this movie. He went to New York and wrote this movie with Frederick Tutin and it was through this deep depression that he wrote something so like, it's hard to describe, but it's like gut wrenching almost like the, the things that are put on screen are shocking, but also like make you think about things in a different way. And there's one scene in particular that we'll point out is an actual moment from his divorce that he included in the film. And this divorce is thematically very important to the film. Yeah. In fact, the director described this film, not as a horror film, but as a divorce sort of relationship breakup film. Yeah, it's almost like the horror that 
stems from this movie all originates from um, a marriage falling apart. Like it, it never, it wasn't supposed to be horrifying and bad. It's just like an event that took place that no one could control. And we see the horrible repercussions of that. So to jump forward a little bit to the film's release, this film was released in 1981, but it didn't make it outside of France and uh, Germany. Yeah. So it was released in 1981 in France and it had a very bad turnout. Um, The director doesn't know why to this day, but he thinks it might've been bad marketing and, also, people weren't watching movies as much at that time. But it was later released in the U.S. on October 28, 1983. It was a heavily edited version, missing 30 minutes of its original cut. And didn't this have uh, problems getting released in the U.K. as well? It wasn't released in the U.K. until 1999. It was labeled a video nasty and essentially was banned from distribution until 1999. And Germany didn't see a physical copy of this movie until 2009. Yeah, and you know, as far as I can tell, it got a limited DVD release, a limited Blu-ray release, and until 2021, when Metrograph restored it and put it on its service, I don't know if a like widely available release was available. Yeah, I I really think Metrograph is the the easiest way to watch this movie now, other than like buying it online somewhere. Mm-hmm which is insane because it's, it's such a good movie. It should be seen more. And I guess like that's what stigma can do to a movie. It can keep it, you know, from being appreciated for years and years and years just because it's bad, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, first impression watching this movie, I was kind of uh, amazed that nobody has like this movie isn't in the zeitgeist at all. Like I've never heard of this movie basically prior to uh, a listener of the show, Zach suggesting it to Kelton. And watching it, there's no obvious reason why this isn't more popular. Yeah. It's a, it's a good classic horror film. There are elements in this that I can attribute to other classic horror movies. One, one for example, the music, the sound. It is very Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque. Um, it's, it's like really uh, unnerving noises, like, like dripping noises and like that like whirring metallic noise just lots of unsettling things and coupled with the visuals make it just so hard to look at sometimes and that is exactly what texas chainsaw massacre went for a fusion of audio and visual that make it physically hard to look at the screen and these actors in the movie um for instance sam neill played mark He's gone on to have a pretty great career. Yeah, he's had a lot of work. I mean, you probably know him as the scientist from Jurassic Park. And Peaky Blinders. Yeah, like, you know this guy. You watch this movie, you're like, oh, this is not like a no-name, no-budget movie. It's like if freaking Joaquin Phoenix was in Cannibal Holocaust, you know? Like, this is so removed from anything he's ever done, and... He goes on to say this is the most extreme movie he's ever worked on. Sam said that? Yeah. I believe that. He says he thinks he escaped that film with his sanity barely intact and claims it's his favorite movie to work on to this day. Wow. That's high praise for a movie nobody's watched. Yeah. Uh, to counter that, Isabella Johnny, the female lead, 
calls it the type of movie you only do when you're young. She said the director makes you sink into his world of darkness and his demons, but it's okay because you're young, because you're excited to go there. She also went on to say, his movies are very special, but they've totally focused on women as if they're lilies. Thinking back on it, she said, uh, it was exciting to do. There was no bones broken. But she asked herself, how or why did I do that? And then she said, I don't think any other woman has worked with Andre twice. And I think as we get into the movie and start to describe it, it'll become more clear why that is. Because the scenes she had to do were very difficult. Yeah, I truly, some of the most raw performances I've ever seen on screen. I mean, literally, like, one of the scenes we'll talk about, they only did one take of it because they knew going in that it was going to physically require a tremendous amount from her. So they only shot it once. So what you see on screen is what she did. Ah, man, it's just so awesome. Yeah. When Whenever a director's not afraid to do that. Well, let's get into it. There's... A lot of subplots, a lot of things that take place in this movie. Um, we'll do our best to give it all a fair shake, but uh, basically it starts off, and we learn that our main character, Mark, he's the husband, Sam Neill, played by Sam Neill, and he's returning home from what we can assume is spy work. Yeah, it's pretty obvious spy work it's a little unclear what the government is associated with it but you get it like a cia vibe where like no names are being said everything is sorted through code very direct lines of questioning sort of absurd lines of questioning um and basically he's debriefing the operators he works with so that he can go home and spend more time with his wife he's done uh he's giving up his life as a spy to go and be with his family he returns home to his wife and uh, finds that she wants a divorce. He doesn't really know why this kind of came out of nowhere. He's just been gone for a year doing his spy stuff. And he's just kind of like, you know, what can I do? Like what, you know, why, how are we here? Like he's just flabbergasted. He knows he hasn't been necessarily the best husband, but I think he is surprised that, um, you know, he left his job to try and make it work. So he's surprised that, the moment he arrives, she's looking for a divorce. She claims that there's no other man. This is a you know recurring theme throughout the movie. She doesn't give any answers, really. She's very vague. Um, Mark is like always trying to figure it out, and Anna's always not giving him anything, and it just always leads to this rage. Um, and I, I really do like that this ties in to sort of the themes of the movie by the end of it is when she says that there's no other man, she's not lying. Yes. Mark quit his job and Anna's left after telling him about the, she wants the divorce and he just goes like snooping around the apartment looking for uh, an answer to like why this might be happening. And he finds uh, a book about a book in German about tantric massage Oh, I didn't realize that's what it was. And inside of this book is uh, a postcard from someone named Heinrich. And it's clearly like an affectionate postcard. So I looked up tantric massage because I didn't know what the fuck that was. And it's like a sexual, like Buddhist healing massage. Ooh. So that will explain, that will make sense 
when we meet Heinrich later. Yes, that's very in character that's for Heinrich. That's very in line with what he would do. Uh, what I liked about that scene is he doesn't quite immediately go snooping. He, like, exercises some restraint for a little while. Like, he's a spy. We know this. Um, and he's, like, sort of giving her the benefit of the doubt and not going snooping because, like, we know he's capable of, like, yeah. finding out the truth. Like, he can find an answer to this. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist because this guy is the most qualified person for this. And he sort of eventually makes it to that point. After he finds this, he invites Anna to have this kind of lunch thing with him. It's uh, kind of a crazy scene where we're starting to see, like, the performances just be fucking off the wall. And some of the camera work here is stunning. Yeah, that is another thing uh, will come up a lot. The cinematography in this is incredible. Uh, lots of sweeping movement. Um, this is... You know, 1981 steady cam. This is no frills. This is just someone really good at their job and working in tandem with the director to make really cool scenes. Uh, a lot of the movement is very intentional. You will see things happen. It almost feels like things are happening at perfectly the right time because the camera leads you to believe that, oh, like the camera moved here. This happens. This happens. It's so cohesive. And I love it. But yeah, they have this conversation here. And essentially he confronts her uh, of like, you know, why why not me? Like, it's it's kind of like just grasping at straws. Like, how did this, how do we get here? Like, surely there's some way we can amend this. What I love is they don't sit at the same table. They sit at adjacent tables with their back sort of next to each other. And the camera is sweeping back and forth between them as they're speaking. So as she's talking, you're seeing her sweeps back to him. And I don't know if you noticed, but the wall behind them is a mirror. And like, I was just waiting for the camera to just get into frame. And like, they did it perfectly where the camera was I never didn't in notice frame, that. but you can see the back of the actor's heads the whole time. It's a pretty remarkable shot in terms of like how well it's blocked out. Yeah. Eventually, the conversation gets more and more heated to the point where Mark is literally, like, screaming, walking across this restaurant, throwing chairs, throwing tables. Anna's, like, screaming and running away. And he gets tackled by, like, three chefs. It's yeah. just a fucking shit show. He just like, gets, like, piled on. Like, you could... There's really no way to stunt that. Like, he gets tackled by four dudes he almost hit that one of the ladies with a chair there was a lady trying to get out of the way and i swear that chair was inches from her face there's some like physical action that sam neil did in this film that like i don't think there was a double for i think this is like this is one of those shots that i like, could have easily hurt him yeah. had it gone wrong he said that there's stuff that he did in this movie that he'll never do again and that very well could be one of them i believe it after that Mark goes back to a hotel room and essentially gets lost in a drunken haze for yeah, three weeks. Yeah, he just weeks. goes on a hardcore bender. It's so extreme that I was actually pretty confused as a viewer at first as to what's going on. Because, like... He's, like, shaking. Yeah, it looks like he's, like... Seizing, almost. Yeah, it's like he's coming off of heroin is what it looks like. Yeah, like, just hardcore withdrawals. Mm -hmm. It's pretty visceral, like, even seeing it. There's no lines here. But, like, what he's showing us on screen is so visceral and raw. And 
He finds out that he's been here for three weeks after finally finding some clarity, and he goes home to his apartment Mm -hmm. and finds their son, Bob, totally alone. The apartment's destroyed. Anna's been gone. Um, Bob's just been left alone to his own devices. He's probably, what, five, six years old? Yeah, Bob is very young, like unable to take care of himself, basically. And what's crazy is, you said this before, this is actually a, this scene is inspired from a real event in the director's life. Yeah. At one point, he had come home and found his wife totally gone and found their son with jam smeared all over his face. And and I feel like that moment in particular might have been like the catalyst for this whole movie. The concept of like caring so little about someone in a family that you're willing to do something so heinous. Like being being in another place, another headspace, and not realizing the hurt you're causing. Yeah, it, it was sort of the first moment when I realized that this movie was going to be a lot darker than I expected. Um, because when they're at the restaurant breaking up, basically Mark said, like, you have Bob. Like, your our son loves you. He knows you. He needs you. And it's going to be easier if I'm not involved. And she agrees. This is the way they wanted it. So when he comes home and finds that Bob's been neglected, that's when it sort of hit that this movie was going down a dark path. The foundations for everyone was were, were already flawed at this point. There was... We've already established there was no good guy because both people have made mistakes at this point. Mark cleans Bob up and takes him to school, and that's when we meet Helen, which you might wonder why Helen looks so much like our lead. Same actress. Same person. She. Uh, it's funny, uh, Mark is almost like, bewildered like he's like a wig like he he thinks it's his wife like pretending to be a school teacher yeah he pulls on her hair which confused me at first because i didn't make the connection immediately that it was a different person played by the same yeah yeah it is something that you you can miss because it's like not explained to you it's just there presented to you after he takes bob to school he goes to heinrich's house he's he's able to track down heinrich this man that Anna's been seeing, and he wants to have a word with him. Mm-hmm. This guy is hilarious. This character, when you first meet him, because the movie's been just so deadly serious up till now, that you start with like Heinrich being a serious person, but Heinrich is the most loosey-goosey, hippie character that's ever been in a West German film. And his accent... He's absurd. It's just... He's a cartoon character. Everyone else in this movie, their performances... Are, are wild and over the top, but they, like, make sense in the context of the film. And while it doesn't, like, negatively impact the film, Heinrichs doesn't fit at all. He's just, like, this fucking weird guy who's so out there and, like, talking about all this, like, spiritual shit the whole time. He's never grounded in reality at any point. And, like, we, I can't see it. Like, I'm seeing Heinrich. Heinrich is supposedly Anna's lover, like, and he's just so fucking weird. We never actually see them together for the most part of the movie, which makes total sense because they have no, they would have no chemistry. Like compared to the straight laced spy that is Mark, Heinrich is an absurd, 
like person for Anna to fall in love with. So the whole reason why Anna chose Heinrich over Mark is this theme of, of you know, possession, right? Mark is, he's in the realm of a woman is exists to be a man's wife and take care of the house and the kid. And Heinrich is a believer that, you know, you can't change people. People will do whatever they want. Like, it is in your best interest to allow people to do what they like. Like, you can't lay claim or possess people. And and that's kind of like the line that's drawn. That's why she leaves Mark is because Mark is controlling. Also, uh, Heinrich lives with his mother, which I just think is a hilarious detail. Yeah. <laughs> she cheated on him with a dude that lives with his mom as an old man and is like just talking about the goofiest shit and practices German tantric massage. He's just such a, <laughs> he's such a goof. The one thing that is like really surprising about Heinrich is like, they get into a fist fight here and Heinrich just destroys Mark. He karate chops him. He literally knows martial arts that there's like a whole fucking, he like gets ready and everything. You think it's you think Heinrich's gonna get his ass kicked because he's like doing martial arts and then he like it fucking works. Just subdues Mark. Mark is fucking destroyed. Oh yeah, yeah. Like it sounds goofy because it is, but like it's gory too. It's like yeah, like the one like bop on his nose is like a fountain of blood, and he's like guttural, like uh, like he just got fucking rocked. Mm-hmm. Mark comes home and confronts Anna and basically says, you know, I've, I've met the guy that you've been seeing and she doesn't really give a straight answer as to like why she cheated on him, like why this all happened. And Mark just gets progressively more and more angry. And then we get to a point where like she's about to leave and she strikes him. And like, this was a pretty hard scene to watch where he just like, like she slaps him and then it just goes silent. And he stares directly at the camera and it's just like this horrifying moment of like, oh fuck, like, like Mark's pissed and he just like strikes Anna like six times. Yeah. Over and over. And it's like brutal. Like it was, it was pretty hard to watch. Um, And she's like getting like, she's getting bloody in this scene. Yeah. I mean, it's truly no frills, domestic abuse just recorded. Um, as part of the scene. And I honestly don't think it serves a huge purpose. Like this scene could have been cut and I don't think it would have directly impacted the movie. Like, no, I mean, I could see how thematically, um, I I feel like he would include this as sort of a commentary on like men expect, you know, their wife to stay with them, even though they beat him. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, true. He's like sort of pointing at the absurdity of this expectation like paints a picture of like how absurd it is that Mark expects her to like love him again when she literally, he literally beats the shit out of her. And I think maybe it also serves as a reminder that Mark is not a good guy. So the movie starts with Mark sort of not being portrayed as a good guy. Anna is then started to be portrayed as a villain once she abandons Bob. Yeah. And we start to go back on Mark's side throughout the Heimrich thing. And at this point, we are pretty much fully into Mark as being the main character. And then 
here Andre is reminding us that Mark is not a good guy. Yeah. There's a lot of moments where you kind of ask yourself who is in the right and who is in the wrong in this movie. And after that, they, the argument spills out into the street. And this is kind of a important scene of, um, they're arguing in the street and Anna like steps in front of a truck and causes a, an accident. Mm-hmm. Like one of the cars that this truck was hauling slides off. And I think that this scene was kind of painting a picture of like their conflict, like their internal conflict has now manifested and is causing real world uh, consequences. There's, there's external repercussions for what they're experiencing now. It's no longer just something contained within their marriage. I like that. Yeah. It felt like a symbolic scene. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it meant though. Yeah, this was, uh, it doesn't seem like it because it's an older movie, but there is a pretty big budget for this movie. $2.4 million. Which always surprised me because watching this movie, um, doesn't feel like it's a big budget movie. No. So to see an actual sort of like set piece car wreck like this, it caught me off guard. Yeah. We meet Margie who is like a friend of the family. She's like Anna's best friend. Yeah. She's supposed to be Anna's best friend. And Mark occasionally has been calling Margie when you can't get a hold of Anna to sort of figure out where she is. And she is basically like, I'll watch Bob for you. Um, it's kind of a weird scene. She's like, I love seeing you suffer and is, has her hands like all over him. There's like some obvious sexual tension. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Mark has been cheating on Anna with her for some period of time. And it's it's kind of established like, oh, like another example of like they're the same person. They're both flawed. Also, Margie has this big ass cast on her leg. I don't think it means anything, but it's just an interesting character detail. It's pretty goofy. Like, she's, like, limping and stuff. Yeah, it's sort of a comedian. It's like, it's a funny thing. And then after that, Mark goes and hires a detective to watch his wife. Um, it's funny. Like, he's a spy, and he hires a detective. Like, I, I guess he can't be ever at once because he's got a kid and stuff. But you think, like, he could have done it. <laughs> I kind of liked it actually as a spy move. Like it felt like something a spy might do. Like right. he knows that he would be recognized. So he hires somebody. Yeah. And uh, I, and I guess it's like he's going to do his own thing anyways. So it's like, why not get some help? And I think uh, at this point when he hires the detective, Mark is also suspicious of Heimrich and Anna's relationship. He thinks that Heimrich is not the only place she's been. He returns home to Anna. And this is kind of a, an interesting scene there. They're cutting meat. Anna's cutting meat with an electric knife. Yeah, this is a very <clears throat> stressful scene for me. I, I've actually paused it a few times. Uh, the scene takes place in their kitchen, and Anna is cutting meat and then grinding meat with a grinder. Like, while this whole conversation is happening, she's, like, actually on screen chopping up meat and putting it in a grinder. And, like, the audio of it is very present in the film. So, like, you can't not focus on it as they're, like, having a pretty heated argument. There's just this knife and grinding action in play the whole time. And it's, like, the the image of just raw meat and just, like, being cut up. And, like, their conversation is very visceral and raw. It's a long scene, too. This might be a five-minute scene. It is very long. This is kind of where all of the rage and anger spills over and we just see... uh the most, you know, we start to see the insane versions 
that they become for the rest of the movie. Uh, we we saw them kind of subdued, barely, but it's kind. It's at this point where they are both off their rocker. She doesn't really give him any answers like like before, and it all comes to a head with her just bringing the knife up to her neck and like placing it against her neck, and she gets cut, and he like turns around and pulls it away from her. Did we say this was an electric knife? Yes. Okay, so the electric knife goes against her neck. She doesn't actually have to do anything for it to cut her. She yeah. She just places it against her neck, and it starts to cut through it. It's like, fuck, like she's cutting it's, her neck off. It's right there. I fully expected her to like, go fully through her neck fortunately mark grabbed it before it could yeah it was just like a little touch and just some blood and uh it takes the knife from her and takes her into the bathroom and calms her down a little bit and uh then mark just goes back into the kitchen sits down next to the meat grabs a knife it's hard it's it's been cutting meat the whole time and he just like places it on his arm and like cuts his arm in a few different places, like really casually with no reaction. And then Anna comes in times past. There's just meat piled up in the sink and it looks older now and like Brown. And he's got the, the cuts on him at this point. It looks a little more dramatized. And then it's just like, I've got to leave again. Like, just all that shit happens and it's just like back to okay bye mark well she actually says it doesn't hurt does it and then she leaves what do you think that means i think you know knowing that andre was going through a divorce when he wrote this script i think it's this sort of numbness of having this big emotional fight a divorce in this case is so traumatizing that even physically cutting yourself doesn't compare at all yeah. to the emotional pain. Like, like he's so he's so fucked up losing his wife that physical pain doesn't even do anything to him. And it really paints a picture of like how distraught Mark is. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to clarify a little bit. Once Mark finds that Bob's been neglected, Mark starts living in the house and Anna moves out. And Anna comes in occasionally just to like make Bob some food or like come see Bob. Yeah. So she will just come into the house and these scenes that we get between Mark and Anna in the house, Mark is almost always surprised that Anna is there. She just kind of shows up. Yeah. So Anna leaves and one of the detectives that Mark hired is able to track Anna down to an abandoned building in Cruzberg. I think it's called. I couldn't tell you, but he's the least subtle detective that's ever existed. Yeah. Could not tell someone to save his life. Like Anna instantly knows he's a detective and is like sus about him. Like it's not a it's not a point of contention of, of if she do or not. She's just like running from this guy. I I think this is a little bit of uh Andre poking fun of like the Cold War sort of secrecy stuff. Like as we see later as well, the spy people are not as like seriously portrayed as the other aspects of this movie either. He's like making fun of these self-serious men, like engaging in like covert operations. Cause they're every single one of the movies, like really terrible at it. Yeah. It's like, Oh, you're so, you're such a cool, super secret spy man. Whenever you're literally just like this old dude who can't even like look covert 
when you're tailing the some lady like I mean we're talking about like at the end of it they're literally running she's running he's running behind her and he's still acting like it's he's being secretive yeah like he's this is still just a guy on a walk he manages to enter the place that Anna's at on the false pretense that there is a complaint about some glass being on the sidewalk from the windows and this is just his excuse to get in there see what's going on with Anna for Mark and there's kind of a funny scene where Anna comes on to him like offers him wine and his reaction is just so like flabbergasted like like I'm here to I'm just here to find the windows I'm just here to check your windows she's like clearly calling his bluff and he has no response to it and like so this apartment that she's in is like dingy as all get out it looks like a, a meth house like it's so destroyed and she's just there's scenes of her like cleaning it and like dusting and mopping and it's like man you're cleaning a literal derelict trap house essentially yeah there's a fridge there's a stove there's a mattress on the floor and that's it not a pretty place to be and there's a room in there that has something really not pretty in it and uh this detective finds it what would you how would you describe what he found like a just a fucking mass of flesh and blood and mucus and cum i think like i don't i don't know i literally it's just a fucking disgusting pile of organic matter uh writhing with like tentacles mhm and anna's in love with this thing and has sex with it a lot so yeah that's that's who she's cheating on every everyone with uh, yeah, and the detective finds this and, um, of course, is surprised. Yeah, uh, mortified to find a fucking, you know, whatever that is, and gets murdered. By yeah, Anna. Anna takes the wine bottle. She broke, broke a wine it. bottle and then stabbed him right in the throat, very bloody. And then stabbed him again and st- stabbed him again. It was, like, quite a brutal scene. Yeah, there's the deaths are very gratuitous. In this movie, all the way through, every single one of them. I think this is the most gratuitous film we've watched so far. Absolutely. It's very, uh, they weren't trying to be realistic with these deaths. It was supposed to be bloody and gross and just make you feel icky. And they did that. So while we're here, I do want to mention the, the special effects in this. It's great. This It was done by Carlo Rambaldi. And his name might not sound familiar to you, but he's very important. He made E.T. No shit. The special effects in this movie are remarkable. Um, Like, there are scenes where people are getting cut, nicked, uh, murdered, and I, I see the blood coming out of their skin. Like, it is knife on flesh flick. And I cannot tell you how they did that. It looks real. And perfect. It looks like uh, an actual, like, fucked up abomination that has a real pulse. Like, they actually made a creature for this movie. And it evolves and gets more appendages. And get this. He had one day to do it. One night. 
for that scene? For the creature, to make the creature. What the fuck? Every single shot of that creature, it didn't exist 24 hours before. He just worked on Encounters of a Third Kind, and he'd had a ton of time to work on that. And so he was kind of accustomed to these big-budget movies giving him time. And he basically showed up, and Andre was like, hey, we're shooting this tomorrow. And he was like, oh, well, fuck, okay. And <laughs> he made it, and it looks great. Uh, so, I mean, if he's not a master of his craft, to be able to make something like that in a day. This guy also did Alien, by the way. So he's a legendary figure in the cinema community, um, clearly. And this was light work for him, apparently. Wild. It looks very good. We cut back to Mark, and he's just at home giving Bob a bath. And this is when Helen shows up, asking about Bob. And this is kind of, uh, we're seeing, you know, the duality of Helen and Anna. Helen is this soft, kind, caring, compassionate mother type uh, who, you know, this scene essentially is them becoming a relationship, like getting together. She, like, offers to take care of Bob um, for the time being and, like, stay with him and stuff. And they almost they almost kiss, but um, they end up just hugging in this scene, which is notable because Mark isn't setting the pace. The relationship between Mark and Helen and Mark and Anna is so drastically different. And this kind of like, that's another way of painting that picture that, you know, there is restraint. Yeah. They get another ring on the doorbell. It's Heinrich this time. And Heinrich is now concerned about Anna. He, he is at a loss as to you know where she is why he hasn't heard from her and this is kind of an important scene for mark because you know he just had this interaction with helen and then he gets this this ring at the doorbell and he sees him on the fritz and this is a point where he gains some of his confidence back he you know is able to realize like i used to fear you like he he's talking to heinrich and he's like i used to fear you you were a threat to my marriage and now you're nothing to me essentially that's kind of his whole vibe a stark contrast to their previous interaction where Heinrich obviously bested Mark. And Heinrich doesn't understand how Anna could have anybody other than Heinrich. Yeah. Heinrich's whole thing is like, like he takes drugs and goes and like sees, like he, he sees visions, like all this like heady shit. And like, he can't like parse the clouds and figure out why things are the way they are. Like he can't, he can't see the vision anymore, and he's, like, losing it. He's it, This whole scene is crazy. He's, like, spinning around, like, literally spinning around like a top, going up and down the stairs. And then at some point, him and Mark actually, like, embrace, and, like, Mark's holding them, and he keeps spinning, and they're, like, just twirling together, and it's just crazy. Like, the whole scene is, is revolving um, physically. It, 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 I think it's, like, kind of symbolic of, like, they're both caught up in it. Like, it's just like, it's a whirlwind. They're both grasping at, like, what the fuck is going on here? But from different points of view, like, Heinrich is now scrambling. He's where Mark was at one point. And Mark is now almost where Heinrich was. It's kind of like it's flipped. Yeah, Mark is almost at a, sort of an acceptance stage. Whereas... Heinrich was trying to preach to him to be accepting because you cannot change things. And then he comes 
and is frantic, it's such a show of irony. Like he completely went back on his word because now he's the one searching for answers. Yeah. It's it's easy to say these things when you are in a good position, but once that all falls away, then you're racking your brain. There's a very important line that Heinrich gives here, and he says, the only thing we have to fear is God. And Mark says that he thinks God is a disease. And Heinrich says, through disease, we can reach God. And that's kind of important because that pertains to the monster. I have some questions. Maybe you can help illuminate as we get a little bit further. We start talking more about God and faith and And chance. And chance. And as we move forward, I think I'm going to need your perspective as to how this all connects. It, It gets pretty heady. Like it's, it's very much a, uh, there's multiple ways you can interpret it really. Like there's different ways of like taking away, uh, what this monster is and what it means in reality. But essentially it's like an ideal. It's like a perfection and perfection doesn't exist. So it's like chasing God essentially this entire movie. And after this scene with Heinrich, we get a conversation between Helen and Mark and he basically tells her that he's at a war with women. The experiences he's had has put him at odds and he just like can't understand women. Like he's, he's throwing a blanket over the situation of like all women are going to backstab me. Helen counters this by saying the only thing common among women is menstruation. Helen is very much a character of, you know, the mundane, the level headed, pretty much the only grounded character in this entire movie, I'd say. And she explains to him that, like, the reason why that he isn't happy is because he doesn't have freedom. But freedom to him is control of someone else. Helen sees that he is upset because he can't control his wife. His freedom comes from a place of evil, of, of taking freedom from someone else. And, and Helen calls them out for that. Right after this, Mark takes Bob to school. And the detective, the, the one he hired in the beginning, comes up to him and is like, hey, like, we... That detective I sent out to look for Anna, I haven't heard from him. And we kind of get a hint that there's a reason why this detective is so concerned about the other detective. Well, they're obviously lovers. Yeah. So at first he checks to see if Mark had been to the location because he wanted to be sure that like Mark wasn't involved in his disappearance. Yeah. Um, so once he, Mark's like, no, I've never been. Mark is sort of... Um, he wants to know what Anna's been up to, but he's sort of over at this moment worrying about Anna. And the detective, for whatever reason, I don't think this really serves a story purpose, is just like, so you know, I care a lot about this man yeah. because we live together. Which is, you know, great, fine. It's just, I don't know why it was in it, but very cool for a 1981 movie. Yeah. I would be curious to see if that made it into the U.S. cut of this. Oh, that is an interesting thing. I would guess not. Yeah, America wasn't ready. And after this exchange, uh, Zimmerman, that's the name of the uh, detective, he goes to that location looking for, I I don't know the guy's name, but the other guy, the other detective. I briefly looked to see what his name was, and I couldn't find it. All I know is that the actor that plays him is the scientist doctor guy from Clockwork Orange. So... That's what he looks like if you've seen Clockwork Orange. It's amazing how many of these actors are, you know, just in other great films. Yeah. Usually when you see these grotesque, like, art horror movies, they are just a bunch of no-name actors that don't have a career in acting. This was a talented cast and crew. He goes back to the building, and 
he has a conversation with her for a little bit and he he gets pretty spooked by her. It's obvious now that Anna is scary. She's unhinged. Not a person you can really interact with in any normal capacity. And he's just walking around. He notices the room as well. Goes in. Discovers Emmanuel. That's his name. Discovers Emmanuel dead on the ground. And then we get, you know, she he gets murdered. Another, uh, Anna just kills someone else. This time with a gun, though. It's very dramatic. Yeah, well, I do want to back up. Because he walks into the room with the bed on the ground. And there's just a pile of gore on the bed. Like, it is the monster from earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is, um, it's like a man. It's human-shaped, except tentacles instead of limbs. Yeah, just writhing. And the chest is just gaping open. It's like an, It's like a hollow. Yeah. Like, you can see through it. Which obviously freaks him out. And then he turns and he sees Emmanuel, uh, like, up against the wall, sort of behind a door. And Anna explains to him how much sex she's having with this yeah, like creature. She says specifically, bed. he's very tired. He made love to me all night. And then they cut to a wide shot, and there's just this puddle at the end of the bed that is a mixture of blood and semen. It is disgusting. It is gross. There is a it happens several times in this movie where there's just this mixture of green, white, and red liquid. It just happens all the time. It's fucking gross. It, you just see it everywhere. And there's like dripping noises. Anytime you're in that room, dripping noises will start to play. And it's just disgusting. Zimmerman gets shot and it's like this really drawn out, dramatic, like, oh, oh, oh. And then like he's on the wall and he slides down and then stops and then fall. Like it's. Every death is like like Japanese theater. Like, it's just so over the top. We cut back to Mark, and he's received a tape from Heinrich of Anna at work. She works as a dance instructor, mm-hmm. and she's speaking French in this. And we get a clear picture of how fucking nuts Anna is. Like, like we get more data as to why she is the way she is. She's clearly like lacking empathy like she just there's this basically what happens is there's a girl there um and she's just you know training them and she like forces this girl to like keep her leg up this whole time it was like something out of uh like whiplash like the instructor just like over and over like brutalizing somebody's trying to learn yeah and she's the it's like a young girl and she's just breaking down and screaming like it's it's pretty hard to watch and she just kind of like walks away and like lets her go and then she runs out and then Anna's like you know that now she'll learn like now she'll know the the pain that's required to succeed this whole time she's staring into the camera yeah this is uh this is something to know directly staring into the camera it's it's almost haunting it, it's like the director is using these moments to speak directly to the audience to get the point across. And basically she says, my faith didn't allow me to wait for chance and chance didn't give me enough faith. I'm the maker of my own evil. Goodness is only a reflection upon evil. This is where her thinking comes from. Goodness is a reflection on evil because like we are only doing good things so that we aren't evil. But she, like she understands that she's just evil. Like 
there is no good within her. And I think that's like what she's trying to explain this entire movie to people is like, I'm, I'm evil. There's nothing I can do to explain this because it's, it can't be explained. Like it's just wrong, but she's not able to articulate that she's lost in this pursuit of God, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of perfection. And there's no way for her to tell people what she's doing and why she's doing it because she's so gone. Yeah. She returns home and it's honestly like, it's harrowing at this point, seeing her on screen. She's like, right. Like her hands, she's like writhing them together and like, just looks totally mentally deranged at this point. Yeah. When we find her, you know, we're following Mark. So he comes home and the house is just destroyed for maybe like the 10th time in the film. Yeah. They managed to wreck it in different ways every time. And this time it's just trash. Yeah. It's remarkable how trash the house is. He goes into the kitchen and she's shuffling through the cupboards and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm getting food. And she's like, just like, no, she said she was getting clothes sorted for Bob. Oh yeah. And she's like putting clothes in the fridge and like putting shit in the pantry. Like she's just fucking gone. It was scary. Cause at this point in the film, I don't, she could do anything. I thought she was going to, so she was like twisting her wrists and pushing her hands together. I thought she was going to break her wrists or something. Yeah. It was, it was so hard the way she was doing it. It like looked physically painful and we get kind of a continuation of the, what we saw on the, uh, the recording and Mark kind of starts to understand what she is experiencing. He, he is starting to understand that, Oh, she's not okay. Like I've been trying to figure out what was wrong with me this whole time. When in reality, she is experiencing so much emotional trauma. And he basically is like, I, you know, I, I see now when you're here, you wish you were there. And when you're there, you wish you were here. And, she just exclaims like, I feel nothing for no one. And it's almost like this pursuit of God has sapped every single emotion that she can feel for anyone in the world, even her own son, even her own husband. She's totally consumed. Uh, we get a quick scene of her like whimpering before a statue of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was a weird scene. Kind of saw this as just like, I don't know, looking for answers. You can't fathom what's going through her mind, like actually, like if you were this person. But I assume that part of her is like still trying to clutch to life and like thinking normally and being a normal person. I, I you know, I, I think there's something in there. Yeah, it's like she knew it wouldn't work, but she thought like she needed to at least give it a try. Yeah, like at least I tried kind of thing. And... It's immediately after this we get the subway scene. Uh, this is definitely the most intense scene. There is a lot of intense scenes in this, but like this, you know, from a a pure performance, emotional standpoint, uh, it's it's pretty incredible. And we haven't talked about this yet, but I assume this is the scene that they only shot once. Yes, they shot this at five in the morning because it was the only time the subway was closed, and uh, basically. Anna's just had a miscarriage from this alien monster thing, and she kind of loses it. She, I mean, literally loses it. She is screaming gutturally. It is so raw. She's, like, spinning around. She's hitting things. She's like She has, like, groceries in a bag. I think milk's in it, and just milk gets everywhere. Um, and it's like you, like, you think it's going to wind down, and she just starts up again. 
Yeah, you can almost, like, taking yourself out of the movie, you can almost, like, feel her, like, waiting to be stopped. And she isn't, so she keeps going. And it's, like, you you could see it be difficult for her to continue to just, like, scream and, like, be sort of tortured for another three minutes. It's one of the rare moments in film where I felt like I wasn't watching a character. I was watching Isabella Johnny on screen. And in that moment, I empathized and like, wow, like she's actually just fucking going crazy. Like she put herself in the shoes of that character she is right now. Like in that moment, she is Anna. It was incredible, incredible performance. The camera never cuts. This is a whole one take. There is a few cuts later on, but the first cut is so long that there's no way to hide the fact that she just did that. Yeah. So there actually is one cut, and that came from a safety take that they took. So they they did shoot it twice technically, but the safety take, she didn't do any screaming or anything. It was all of the action, all you saw, like 95% of it was the one take. This scene uh, was actually the inspiration for a massive attack music video. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's uh Rosamund Pike plays uh, like a character in it. And it's pretty crazy. It's like in a subway and she finds this, like this like robotic ball. that's like CGI and it, she looks at it and it like injects something in her pupil and it's, it starts like the eye will move and her head will move with it. But it's, it's a CGI ball so it's actually really good acting in this music video of like rosamund pike going like oh oh like back and forth and jerking herself around while there's a fake cgi robot ball controlling her how fucking and it's totally inspired from possession like 100 percent. also the scream from this was sampled in a belgian electronic music song by Poison Noir, Pity for the Self. It's actually a good song. Poison Noir, Pity for the Self. If you like electronic music, if you like industrial, you know, check it out. Nice. I'll have to give it a listen. But, uh, yeah, really, really good scene. It ends with her on her knees screaming as uh, that magical mixture of uh, liquids just, like, comes out from behind her neck. And like melts over her, and also out from between her legs. Yeah, it's she's just like I. I don't even know where it came from. It's just like her whole body is oozing this fucking liquid. It's gnarly. So it's a little unclear in this movie what the sort of order of events occasionally is because there's a lot of sort of subplots going on. Yeah, I actually interpreted this scene as being the birth of the creature. She described earlier in the movie, I can't remember the exact quote, but she describes the creature as being her faith. And this miscarriage is like... It was a miscarriage of Sister Faith, and what was left was Sister Chance. Yes, that's what the line was. But my my impression was that this miscarriage was the creature. Like, this is like... Their relationship was so toxic that it caused this creature to be born. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That creature was born out of hoping for something better. And I feel like this sort of jives with what the creature becomes later on in the movie, 
creating something new that is like sort of this fucked up idealist version of what she wants her life to be. Yeah. And it's so grotesque. Like she wants the bad parts too. Yeah. Like she wants all of it. I think it's important to keep in mind where this creature came from as we see it change. We need to remember this moment as being a miscarriage and what we see later is coming from this miscarriage. Yeah. Like it's, it was, it was a mistake from sister chance to begin with, but she went with that. And it's after that subway scene, she goes back home to Mark and basically explains like, that's when the line is delivered of, uh, I miscarried sister faith. What's what is left is sister chance. So I have to take care of my faith and protect it. You know, she's killed two people to protect her faith at this point. It's obvious that this faith comes from a very bad place. And I do think that this is intentionally ambiguous. I don't think that there is necessarily a right answer here. Right. I think Andre is intentionally making this difficult to follow because he doesn't provide an answer. He wants you to draw your own conclusions. Yeah. Which is the mark of a good director and a good movie is you don't have to point everything out. You can create situations that make you self-reflect and answer your own questions, which is like what art is. You know, it prov- it's thought-provoking. You like if, if everything is told to you and written to you explicitly, then you're not actually learning anything. You're just consuming things. Yeah. After this exchange, Mark asks for the ring back and the watch he got her. And she gives him back, and he just goes. He brings up his his dog. You know, whenever he's like, you know, whenever a dog goes underneath the porch to die. You know, if I was a dying dog, would you step over me? If I if I laid at your feet and yelped, would you step over me? And she wastes no time and says yes, and literally steps over him in this scene. We've already established that Anna's totally morally bankrupt, but it's just like, damn, like she's truly lacking all empathy it's oh she is a void and after anna leaves mark does something a little mischievous he uh basically is just like hey heinrich you know now you've been wondering where anna's been here's the address go say hi and mark's fully aware he's putting heinrich in a dangerous position here he knows that anna's fucking gone and doesn't care about heinrich anymore and yet he's like here you go good luck dude yeah he shows up on his fucking badass motorcycle. He's so cool. He's so cool. And he brings drugs. He's so fucking cool. He brought some Coke or something. Yeah, he just said he got it from India. Yeah, some Indian Coke, you know. <laughs> some Indian magic magic drugs. And he just he just wants to bang. Like he's just like you know, all this all this gore and shit's been happening and Heinrich's just been like I I need to fuck Anna again. That's all he cares about. Yeah, Heinrich walks into this, you know, destitute apartment where Anna is like mopping the floor, an empty room. She's mopping an empty room. There's not the door. It's not even dirty. And Heinrich just is so blinded by his need to fuck that he ignores everything. He's just like, you know, 
oh, you you tried to get away from me, but you know that I have you. You know that I lay claim to you because I do not lay claim to you. Yeah, he gives. We get to see Heimrich's brand of love, which turns out to be just as disgusting as anybody else's. Yeah, maybe just, more so. Of course, he's a bad person too. No one's good. We realize like why this thing with Heinrich didn't last that long either. Like clearly. She went with Heinrich and then realized, like, oh, he's just, he's just as vapid and has his own flaws, you know. And he gets to see the, the monster, the the faith that she's been protecting, and uh, it's it's kind of a funny scene almost. He like goes blind for a second, like literally seeing it makes him like lose vision for a moment, and he's like stumbling into the kitchen with his hands out in front of him, but Anna's right there, and he's, like, basically, like, putting his hand at her face and stopping, and they just kind of go down this hallway, and then she opens the fridge, and he sees all the, like, the body parts from the other detectives and stuff, and he's just mortified at this point. It's a funny scene, because, like, Anna knows what's in the house, right? And Heimrich just barges in, and Anna's like, all right, yeah, go find out what's in the house. Almost it's like she doesn't really try to stop. She doesn't try to stop him at all. It's almost like she wants everyone to see it. Like the, everyone who comes into this house, like I guess whenever uh, the first detective came, she was like, no, like you need to leave. Like, why are you here? But like, that was it. Like that was the only time where she was like, go leave, please leave. Yeah. Every other time people just walk in and she's like waiting for them to see the fucking room so she can murder them. She, she like gets a taste for it. It's like she gets off on this the horrible reactions of people seeing this fucking thing she made. Or she just doesn't care. That's the other thing. She feels really apathetic. I wonder if she's thinking, like, maybe someone's going to see it and be like, oh, that's beautiful. Like, oh, my gosh. Wow. Like, that's what she's waiting for, and everybody's just like, oh, what the fuck? She has to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> Anna stabs Heinrich. Um, doesn't actually kill him, just, like, stabs him, like, between the shoulders. Mm -hmm. And this is what makes me feel like she doesn't care. She lets Heinrich live. Like, once he left, she wasn't stressed about, like, him telling the police or anything. It's almost like, in the same way Mark is using Heinrich, she is using Heinrich to get Mark. Yeah. It's funny, towards the end of the movie, you start to see how similar both of them are, Mark and Anna. It all comes to a head at the very end, but you just start to see more of a, a correlation between how sick and twisted they both are in their different ways and like why they love each other so much as a result. But Heinrich gets away and he phones Mark and is like, Hey Mark, I just got stabbed by Anna. You know, it's, uh, can you come down to this bar? Talk to me. I'm not doing too hot. And Mark's just like, why don't you bleed for a while? <laughs> like, he's just, like, totally, like, on his high horse of this fucking... He's he's off his rocker now, too. Like, Mark and Anna are both uh, kind of on the... Like, not the same levels. Mark's still kind of holding on, but Mark, instead of going directly to the bar, goes to the abandoned building where Anna's staying. And she's gone at this point. The monster's been taken. It's totally empty at this point. Uh, somehow she's cleaned all the fucking juices off the walls and stuff. This is what makes me feel like maybe the creature isn't quite physical because it, it seems to be able to disappear and reappear very easily. 
that being said, we do see her clean a lot. So yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another thing at the end that kind of leaves the question is if this is real or not, we'll talk about that, but he doesn't see the creature or Anna or anything, but he checks the fridge and he sees body parts in there. This is the body parts of the detective. By yeah. The way. This is one of the people that found uh, the creature and she murdered. And this is Mark's first realization of Anna being like an evil, bad person. Like this is a moment for him to like, Oh fuck. Like the woman I love is a killer. And it's a very interesting reaction. Uh, I, I think that the acting does a lot of work here. He is very like blown away, right? He's like so shocked, but it's almost like a like a hysterical kind of shocked, like 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 disbelief. And he runs away from the fridge and opens the window and goes out. And he's like standing on this balcony, and he's just like breathing heavily. And then there's a moment where his face just kind of shifts, and he just kind of like opens his eyes wide and like smiles. And I think this is the moment, right, where they're on the same wavelength. Yes. This is the moment where Mark is complicit with Anna, and Anna's complicit with Mark, and they are, it's like their love is ignited again. Like, Mark is in love with Anna again in this moment. And it's so fucked up, because it's like, that's what it took, was like, like this disgusting revelation of like how vile both of them are. Like that's the, what brought him comfort was knowing that they're both bad people. And uh, he decides to help cover it up. Yeah. And, and that's another thing is like, it's clear that he loves his wife enough pr to protect her. Like even though she just murdered someone, it's way more important to him to make sure that nobody knows about that and that his wife is fine than to, like, you know, figure out why his wife is killing people. Yeah, it almost, like, comforts him to know that his wife has been a murderer this whole time. Like, that's better than her falling in love with somebody yeah, else. Yeah, or leaving him. Yeah. Like, the the fucking cope is, is insane. Uh, and he tries to blow it up. He He, like... Uh, sets the gas on. He turns the gas on on the stove and like plugs in like a hair curler. It's just fucking crazy, but he just does all that and he leaves. He just goes out and goes to see Heinrich. Yeah, it's like uh, occasionally the movie will remind you that like, oh yeah, he's like an operative and this felt like a like spy sort of thing to do of like a plausible way of blowing up a building is to leave the stove on and a hair curler plugged in nearby. Yeah, like he really thought this through. And then he goes to Heinrich and we have this whole scene with Heinrich and it's, this is a, this is a pretty important scene because Heinrich has been painted this entire time as this heady out there, you know, druggy guy. And basically they're in the bathroom and Heinrich's like, Mark, we need to get help for Anna. Something's wrong with her. I saw body parts in the fridge. Like she's not okay. And Mark is just like, oh, like, did you, did you knob, did you gobble on a mushroom or take something, perhaps a powder? Like, you're fucking crazy, Heinrich. What are you talking about? And he just gets gaslighted like, what, nothing's wrong with my wife, Heinrich. Is it, is it just because she doesn't love you anymore? 
And we now see Mark is totally off his fucking rocker. Yeah, Mark is loving this. He's loving, like, gaslighting Heimrich. There's nothing better. Like, this is his moment to be like, oh, yeah, my wife doesn't love you at all. (laughs) He's withholding the fact that she doesn't love anyone. And that she's a murderer, and that she, you know all this, all this negative shit. But in this moment, he does. She doesn't love him, and he thinks that she loves him still. I guess so. So he's fine. Well, it's all good. And like, and no one's gonna find out that she killed anyone because he's gonna blow it up. So it's all good. Like it doesn't matter. So uh, he fucking just kills Heinrich. Uh, it's it's so. It's such a, another spy thing that he does. Yeah, He's it's like, like an elaborate death. Yeah, so he, like, leaves the bathroom after this conversation and finds a feather and a shoe on the trash can, like, just sitting there, a fucking feather in a trash Ugh, gross. He, he takes it and goes into the bathroom and, like, puts the feather down his throat to throw up. It, it's, it's so funny that he needed to do this. Like, he could have just killed Heinrich, like, pulled him into the fucking bathroom stall, but instead he needed like an excuse like, oh, I'm sick. Well, he like, he also did it. Well, this is what I love. It, like set up plausible deniability. Like the he threw up in the toilet so that when they find Heimrich, it looks like he threw up in the toilet. Yeah. Basically knocks him out after he goes and checks on him and just like shoves his head in the toilet and flushes it. And uh, that's the end of Heinrich. And he immediately steals his bike and uh, rides back to the abandoned place, explodes it, makes it go boom. This is uh, another show of the budget. I think this was practical. Yeah, this shot surprised me. Um, And I don't know if, if it was practical. It is absurd because they blow up a building that is 10 feet away from the Berlin Wall. Yeah, it it literally says Free West Berlin, like spray painted on it. You can see the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall is in the way of the building, basically. And the building explodes. Like, how could you, How can you just do that during the Cold War? It was insane. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they got permission to do that or anything. Did you pick up on the lady in front of the building screaming yeah. something? What was that? Do so, you know? She said, uh... Put it in clean and get it back dirty was what she said. And I, I think, like, I didn't really gather anything from it. I thought, like, surely it means something, right? Like, it was a, she had a standalone line in this moment. It was so strange. It felt like uh, something out of Twin Peaks where, like, you're having a serious conversation in the foreground. In the background, like, there's a dude just moonwalking out of frame. Yeah. Is what it felt like. It was like so she strange. literally was just there to say this line and scream and be crazy for a second. And after that, he runs back home on uh, Heinrich's bike. He's a biker now for the rest of the movie. He's just, he's just riding a motorcycle looking like a badass. And he sees Margie in the elevator with her throat slit. Just, uh, you know, another, another death added onto the pile. She saw the thing. So Anna had to do away with her. Yeah, he grabs Margie and takes her up to the apartment. Yeah, uh, just trying to hide bodies. Like, really, just like, what else is he going to do, I guess? Yeah. And it's after this that Anna and Mark embrace. Like, this is kind of their moment of rekindling their relationship. 
and finding their spark again. And she's like, do you believe in God? It is in me. And, you know, it says that she had to kill Margie to protect it. Mark is bought in at this point. Like, he is there to help protect it as well. Like, it's what his wife wants, so he's going to help her. Now, I'm not so sure I believe that they're, like, back in love, but they're, like, back. They they are doing something together, and they're going to see it through. Yeah, like, this is, like, they're in on something now. Like Yeah, they're done arguing, finishing. They're basically finishing it. Like, they know that the jig is up as well, like, in real life. But it feels like they are ready to see whatever is going on through to the end. Mark takes care of Margie's body and gets a call from Heinrich's mother. You know, she's concerned and heard about him being found and calls him up. And they have that little exchange. And right after that, Mark goes to drop Bob off with Helen. And this is a scene of... uh, I think it's kind of important. She goes, will you promise me something? Whatever it is. And he just goes, I promise. There's not a pro- There's nothing that's said. It's just, will you promise me something? Oh, I took it like she said it off screen. Because okay. we go from, he says, I promise. And then it lingers for just a second and then cuts to him driving again. So it's like something unsaid. Yeah, something that we didn't get to hear. Comes home and hears some moans coming from the apartment. And this is where we <laughs> we get the reveal. The monsters evolve some more at this point, And now it's banging Anna. Imagine a giant, gory-looking starfish on top of Anna. Yeah, it's just like, a, like, an, like an alien parasite had latched onto her. And she was into it. That's kind of what was going on on screen. Mm -hmm. And she looks at Mark and repeats, almost. Almost. It's almost done. You know, like when there's five minutes left in the oven, it goes like beep. Like we're on the beep now. And I I took this to mean that, uh, so Mark talks to Heimrich's mom. We know that Heimrich's mom knows that Heimrich is dead. Heimrich's mom is just as hippy-dippy as Heimrich. Yeah. And she knows that her son is dead somehow. She can, like, sense his spirit is away from his body. His soul has left his body. And we get the sense that, like, Mark doesn't really want to deal with her. So when Anna says almost to Mark, I took it to mean that she's saying almost like, Mark, you're not finished. You have to take care of this one more loose end. He needs to, f- he needs to tie up the loose end of Heimrich's mom. Okay. Um, so then Mark goes to see Heimrich's mom. And she uh, would rather die than live in a world without her son. Uh, She says, uh, the world is only what it is, murderous. And it's kind of like a harrowing line of like, because like she just lost her son for no reason, really. And all she wants is to lay down and die at this point. Like, this is truly a moment of like, sadness. It's just like, damn. I almost expected to find out that she was possessing Anna at this moment (laughs) because the camera work is, it sort of implies that she 
like was going to be, she it like really focused in on her. Like we've been following Mark this whole time, but it like sort of pivoted to really being like this mom's character. And we yeah. like see her face through a mirror at some point, And I, I was just expecting a big reveal. It, it didn't come. Yeah. It, but it definitely could have been like a, like a jigsaw situation where she was pulling the strings the whole time. Yeah, I can see that. Jump cut to a dead dog in a river. Now this scene is cool. There's this the the music, the track here straight out of like 80 synth wave. It is so badass. And he's like it's 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 almost like uh the movie restarts for a moment. And it and and Mark's just there. And Pink Sock Guy is, like, in his ear, like, like, hey, like, uh, what does he say? The, the mentor doesn't like your replacement, your successor. Like, he needs you. Like, he doesn't want to confide in him. Like, Mark was so, he was just the top pony boy spy, and they want him back. But he can't come back because he's got work to do. I just want to clarify for the listeners who haven't seen this movie, Pink Sock Guy is referenced at the very beginning of the film. Ultimately, it didn't end up being that important. That's why we haven't really talked about Pink Sock Guy. But um, Pink Sock Guy is a character from the very first scene when Mark quits the spy agency. Yeah, he's uh, he's just one of the dudes that's sitting at the table in the very beginning. And Mark delivers a line of, uh, he says, uh, when he crawled under the porch to die... I followed him. I wanted to see what made him crawl under there. And that's where, you know, that's a that's an insight into Mark's character of like his fascination with the these dark things. Like he's always been like this. And it kind of draw, paints a picture as to why he was so quick to jump on board with this crazy shit with Anna. Mark and Anna are in the middle of all these murders, right? And like f- finishing whatever they're doing. Mark's old associates want to pull Mark back into the game and they are like spies. They work with the police or whatever. So Mark goes back to where Anna and the monster are fucking. And as he pulls up, he sees his associates and the police uh, like staking out the house, going to go bust Anna. Like they know what's going on. They've been letting it happen. But now that Mark isn't playing ball, they're going to go after. Yeah, they're going to clamp down and it's this point where the budget comes through in full effect and he you know jumps in the back seat of this taxi and puts a gun to this guy's head and he's like drive into that police car and it's so funny like the guy's just like you got it like all right let's go and slams on the gas and like mark i think this was a, a real stunt he like jumps out of a moving car and rolls yeah. Was pretty fucking cool. Uh and the car goes and hits the police car and um a cop comes out and he shoots a cop, and gets shot. Uh it's a whole ordeal. Shit has totally hit the fan at this point. And he flees on the bike. Or no, he uh he jumps in Anna's car and then leaves and then it just cuts to him on a bike. So this is very strange because um, I watched this scene twice, actually, and I can't quite track where Mark is. And I think it was done on purpose because we see Mark roll out of the back of the car. We then see Mark crash into the police car, get out and start running and get shot. We then see Mark 
turn around and shoot back at the cops from the middle of the street where it looked like somebody just got shot. And then we see the blue car drive away, but we don't actually see Mark get into the blue car. Oh, so it might not even have been Mark. I, I am unclear because the status of yeah, because I here. thought it was weird that it cut from the car to him on a bike. No, so Mark is in the street. We see Mark's face in the street, and then the blue car drives away. So maybe Anna was there. Yeah. So yeah, it cuts to Mark on a bike now, and he's. This is kind of a cool shot of just him riding a bike and screaming like at the top of his lungs uh, as the music ramps and crashes the bike. I think it was a real crash, like another real stunt. Fucking cool. Yeah, this is like, I I was trying to pay really close attention here because like as we see this bike crash, it looks like Sam Neill is like crashing the bike. Like he laid over a bike. And I think it was. I think I don't think there's a stunt double here. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Like, that's cool. I, I don't. Nobody does that. That's not normal. That's not a normal thing in movies, especially for like a. He, I mean, he wasn't huge then, but a successful actor. You can actually see how he kind of missed the mark in that stunt, uh, because the bike skidded and it ro- fell over, and he like fell off the bike. But just after that part. Uh, there's sand all over the road that looks like a spot where you're supposed to skid a bike for a stunt, okay. but he did it before the sand. So I don't know if it like went according to plan. Uh, it looked cool. It like looked it, cool. It, it sold. It looked, it looked real. Yeah. None of the stunts looked fake in this. Not a single one. We're coming up on uh, the end of the movie here. He stumbles into this, you know, random building that he crashed at. And there's a giant spiral staircase and he starts climbing it and he gets to the top and just collapses. And I love Mark is all bloody at this point. And as you, as he goes up the staircase, uh, there's a camera shot down from the top of the building. You can sort of see how the staircase winds around the edge of the frame. And it's just a trail of blood all the way up. So much blood. Anna's not too far behind him. Somehow she's tracked him down. And that's when we see the finished version of the monster. She runs up the stairs. She says, it's finished. And we see Mark. It's, it's Mark's doppelganger. Yeah. It's like a, it's a good looking version of Mark with black eyes. Blue eyes. A oh, blue eyes. I think it's blue eyed Mark. Okay. Yeah. I was reading about it. It's blue eyed Mark, green eyed Helen. Because their eyes are the only thing we have to tell that they're different because they're literally the same person. But yeah, that's that's the big reveal. That was this faith, this monster this whole time was, uh, was Mark. Uh, all the good and the bad. And she just says, it's finished now. And Mark holds up a gun and aims it at this doppelganger and he's just about to shoot. And Police from the bottom floor open fire and just gun him down. And Anna. It hits Anna. And all of the bullets miss the doppelganger. Yeah. So that's what's interesting to note here. That's what makes me believe that this doppelganger wasn't quite as real as we thought. This monster wasn't quite as real as we thought because he's just standing there and all these bullets magically go around him. He's literally standing totally still and doesn't react. It's at this point where... 
Anna climbs on top of Mark. They're both just bloodied and battered. And this is like their their last moment of love together. Like this is kind of their moment of like existing and and being a part of each other. And like, and they, it lasts just for a moment. And then Anna just like puts a gun to her back. I, it's it's like she was trying to shoot both of them. That's what I thought. I thought they were trying to go together. Yeah, so she, like, holds this gun behind her back and really, like, cranks her fingers. So I don't know if you're not driving, listener, right now. Like, put your hand behind your back in the shape of, like, finger guns and try and point it through yourself. And, like, pull it away, like, to where you're, you have space to actually discharge around. Yeah, and she's, she's laying on top of Mark at this point and shoots... Uh, killing herself, not killing Mark, um, which is what made it unsure to me is like she aimed it as if she's trying to kill both of them, but he doesn't die. I almost feel like this is like, uh, you know, expectation versus reality. Like Anna was like, oh, like in this beautiful moment, me and Mark will go together. And she did that. And then like it's it's a small caliber pistol so it can't penetrate two bodies. Like, I I really think, like, she was so caught up in this magical moment, and then it, reality struck after she shot herself, and she was the only one that died. Yeah. It's, it's pretty rough. And then the doppelganger just keeps going up the stairs, and there's a woman there. This is, this is a really strange... I, I'm not quite sure what to make of this final scene, but there's a woman there, and... This is worth noting that it's the same leg as the cast. Her, she doesn't wear a, a shoe on that leg. Really? Yeah. She's not wearing a shoe on the same leg that Margie had a cast on. So that's that. That's my only thing that can make me think that this is related in some way to the main movie. It's the freaking shoe thing. Andre, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> but so there's a woman there and the doppelganger puts the gun in her hand and is like, do you want to help me? And she's like, yes. He's like, shoot them. And she shoots it like nothing. Like, I don't know what she shoots at. And then we cut to Mark, real Mark, just jumping off of a fucking, off the railing. Off the staircase. Yeah. And just dying. Like. He just, just plummets to just, his death. Yeah, like literally just like, ah, we, you know, we got to get the shot of Mark dying too. Now we also intermixed in this is we see the pink sock guy who we're not going to talk about, but it really emphasizes that he has pink socks. Yeah, he takes his shoe off and shows pink socks to the camera. And that that's the last thing we see. And it jump cuts to Helen and Bob. Yes. At their apartment. Where we left them. This is the final scene of the movie. And... It's a great scene. It it perfectly encapsulates this movie. It puts such a perfect little bow. There's a ring at the doorbell. Bob is playing, eating or something. Helen is doing doing things. Doorbell gets rung and Helen's going to go answer it and Bob just keeps saying like don't open. Like don't open the door. Don't open. Don't open. And Helen says I want to, but I want to. And you see doppelganger mark at this point and he's like in the door with his hands on it it's a really like scary pose it's a um 
what what's it called when you can't fully see through uh opaque yeah it's an opaque door but uh what's that called like that style of glass called that you can't oh uh like frosty yeah it's like a frosted glass door that he's like pushed up against so you you can can just see a silhouette and bob freaks out yeah bob just keeps going don't open don't open and he runs upstairs and jumps in a bathtub and drowns himself like just face down in the tub cuts away and we're back to helen and like as she's about to open the door we start hearing sirens and the sounds of bombs dropping and guns and explosions and she just stares into the camera with these haunting green eyes as the lights start to flicker and then black credits roll it sounds of war and destruction throughout the credits throughout the entire credits sequence and that's the end of possession I like this ending. It's great. I really love a movie that doesn't need to or care to explain itself, yet can end in a satisfying way emotionally. What this ending does is it takes this little story that he's written from a very personal place. Like this is a, for all intents and purposes, based on a true story you know, past all the crazy shit. And he's able to frame it in a way that like shows how this can affect the world, right? Like the destruction of a marriage and all the pain and suffering that can cause is like in the same vein as like the world coming to an end. There truly is bad in the world exists always. And like, we're never going to get away from it. It, it paints like a really dark picture of like how people can cling to things that aren't, that, that they shouldn't cling to and rely on things that are bad to be happy. I saw an interpretation of this. I don't remember exactly where I read it that talked about Helen and doppelganger Mark as being sort of these like idyllic post uh, divorce versions of the main characters and I don't fully understand how that connects. Do you, did you read that at all? What I gathered was Helen and doppelganger Mark are perfect versions of themselves that each other sees. Anna wants doppelganger Mark and Mark wants Helen. Okay. But, none, but neither of them are real. So they leave this path of destruction in the pursuit of an ideal that does not exist. They were never going to be happy together, but they couldn't live without each other. So they created versions of themselves that they could still be in love with and maintain their relationship. It happens a lot in the movie where Mark is like, you know, he says that he hates her, but in the same breath, he says he loves her and that he can't imagine being without her. And that's where this comes from is the inability to let go and realize that things aren't repairable. And so they created love again in the worst way. They went about it like they they achieved that love when in reality they should have just moved on. I like that. It's like a really gut-wrenching movie for, you know, like if on your first watch, if you're just like sitting down to watch a movie by yourself, it's a lot. This is definitely the most intense movie we've covered, not just in themes, but in like 
actual images on the screen. Yeah. It, w- it was distressing, especially in the beginning, before the movie got like supernatural yeah, and metaphorical. You knew, before you knew that it was going to go that crazy. Yeah, and you're just watching uh, just this brutal divorce. It was like, it was a pretty rough watch. Because their performances are stellar. I mean, truly, Isabella Johnny won Best Actress in 1981 for this film. Hell, I mean, Sam Neill could have won something too, honestly. Like, some of the best individual performances I've seen in a movie in a long time. Mm -hmm. The kind of performances that I know for a fact... Like, yeah, they've said it in interviews that it took a lot out of them. I'm looking at the screen, and I can physically see them, like, reaching into parts of themselves that they didn't know existed to give the emotions that they gave. I can only speak volumes about the performances in this movie. Even the minor performances were good. The only one that was weird and stood out was Heinrich, and I still liked his character. And I think that was intentional. Like, I don't think that was, like accidental at all like i think heimrich is exactly who andre wanted that character to be it was a calculated decision to make this wild heady weirdo so i mean the story of this film is remarkable but the cinematography of this film is just hands down so good it's it's Hard to believe that this film isn't more known just based off of the cinematography. Like yeah. you should see shots of this on like filmmaking gifs, like you do for like Mr. Robot or something. Yeah, there's a part where you know the the, the beginning scene of them having the conversation at the table. There's just this constant rotating steady cam around the entire thing, like a whirlwind, and that's just part of the scene, like. That isn't even important. It's just how it's presented to you. There's a scene where he's rocking back and forth in his chair, and you can physically see the rack focus between him and his wife behind him. It's not perfect. You can see that there's actually someone trying to get that focus. And, and you know, like, he missed focus at one point, but it doesn't matter. It's like whenever you set out to do these things, when you make these creative decisions... Like, that's what sets your movie apart. That's what makes it unique and interesting and, and worth watching again. The scene in the church where she's looking up at the Jesus uh, statue, it's, like, incredible. Like, the angle on her is so unique and interesting and, like, sets her apart from everything else around her. I do have a very interesting tidbit of information. The cinematographer, uh, Bruno Newton, had a child with Isabella Johnny in 1979. Oh, okay. Bruno and Andre had worked together previously, I believe. He attributes like the surreal, like clinical, clean look of this movie. It's very sterile. Like at the end there, their faces were just like this pure, holy white. So like watching this movie got me very interested in Andre's career. I was browsing his Wikipedia page and I happened to watch a trailer for one of his other movies called On the Silver Globe. And it has just some of the most amazing shots in the trailer. And I am very interested to go through his other films and see if he's worked on other projects with the cinematographer because there is some really stunning stuff in his backlog. Yeah, I am blown away like i i yeah i'm gonna look up this cinematographer because i need to see more work he's done 
that cinematography was so unique and so special that it's worth watching a movie with that. If someone told me that a movie was shot like that, I wouldn't need to know what the movie was about or if the plot was going to be good. I would watch it to see scenes like that. That truly is enough for me to see magnificent shots. And whenever the movie is actually good, you know, it, it just makes it that much better. We, we touched on a little bit, but I'll go a little in depth. The wall is so important in this. Like, that is one of the key dividers in this movie is is the division of this country. Like, the the relationship between Anna and Mark paints the picture of the current world. Like, that's why there's bombs at the end. The pain that's felt in this micro level in one relationship compounds and expands and grows and all that pain and despair mounts to a full-blown war, a full-blown nuclear holocaust. It's it's kind of like he painted a picture at a small scale and hinted at where it can be, like what what can result from these negative emotions. I think, you know, it's obvious at this point that we have been quite intrigued by this movie. You yeah. Know, I think we both really liked it. It's a movie that makes you like want to learn more. Like I truly like found this movie and I found other microchasms in it that like further my interest in film. Like like I discovered a little gold mine of cinema that I hadn't found. And I'm genuinely going to be exploring uh more Eastern European movies, more Polish films. Uh, this is a technically a West German French film but he's a Polish director. Most of his movies were in Poland. This was actually his only English film he ever made. But yeah, I can't say enough positive things about this movie. It is, it's so good. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, I encourage people to hop on Metrograph and give it a watch. Yeah, watch it in crystal clear 4K quality as it was in its original cut. No yeah. better way to enjoy it. Now, uh, I'd like to try something a little bit new here. If you watch this movie and you want to talk to us about it, specifically, I would love to talk to some of you guys, if you watch it, about the sort of spy subplot, uh, the pink socks that we didn't talk about here. Let's have that discussion on the YouTube page uh, for this video. We don't have a subreddit. You know, you can email us, but like really YouTube comments is the only public forum we have to talk about stuff right now yeah so yeah if you watch it go to the youtube and like let us know and tell me what you think about the pink socks we, we don't know like we're trying to figure it out just like you we looked it up there's nothing online like they don't there's this parts of this movie that are still like w up in the air as to like what what the hell is going on uh so yeah if you have any advice on, on how we can make sense of pink sock guy Please let us know. Yeah. Tell us on the Feargenics YouTube page for this episode. Um, let's see. Anything else we need to tell the audience? If you like good horror movies, watch Possession. Yeah. This is a very good one. It Highly is, recommend. It is Kino. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, check us out on Patreon. We have another podcast, a Patreon exclusive podcast called The Witching Hour, uh, where you can hear Kelton and I warm up. Or cool down. Sometimes we record before, sometimes we record after the episode. Sometimes we're lukewarm. Yeah. 
And um, thank you to Intercut Productions for producing this podcast. Bye. Bye.